Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton, and today I am joined by an amazing guest, Lana Seiler. She is a licensed clinical social worker and primary therapist at APN Lodge. Lana places a high value on holding space for guests to process their experiences and begin to heal. She's a, she is a champion of holistic and scientific mental health and addiction treatment, helping clients fight for their development of a healthier view of themselves, others, and the world. Those hard-won results are her greatest reward. Since graduating and gaining licensure, Lana has attended numerous trainings and read extensively on treating developmental trauma in adults with or without co-occurring disorders. She is trained in EMDR, clinical hypnotherapy, neuro-linguistic programming and risking connection, internal family systems methods, AEDP, neuro-linguistic effective relational model, and completed a six-week intensive trauma therapy training led by Bessel van der Kolk. You guys know how much I love him. He is the one who wrote Body Keeps the Score. Thank you so much for being here, Lana. Thank you for having me. Yeah, quite the, you know, number of accolades. So you're a slouch is what they're saying. (laughs) Same arena, but lots of tools, yeah. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. I, I think that's the really cool thing about what we do is that we can continue to learn and take that knowledge in a bunch of different directions, depending on how it applies in our job, you yeah. know? So that's wonderful. Now on here, if you aren't, uh, aren't familiar with AKA, we go through a bunch of questions from our audience. They are, there's no shortage every week. You guys, I think that we're not going to have any more questions and there's like 200 and something more. So if you're out there and thinking that your question, you know, was never going to get answered, I do my best. We pick the ones with the most thumbs ups or the ones right today that Lana and I can best answer given her and my own expertise. Without further ado, do you want to just jump right into it? Or do you want to tell people a little bit about what you do at APN Lodge first? Yeah, I could do that. I'm a primary therapist at APN Lodge. Um, I'm, I'm, I shift roles quite a bit. We're we're a large um, treatment center and the beauty of being big is that we get to do lots of different things and help people in different ways. And um, we're up here in the mountains in Colorado in Edwards. So kind of uh, just a little bit outside Vail. It's absolutely gorgeous, um, which I feel like the scenery does a lot of the work too, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I would agree. Having seen from the views of the, from the windows of my other interview, they were so nice to show me. It definitely helps that it's gorgeous. Yeah, right. Soothing. Um, and so I'm working with people individually really at this point to do additional trauma work with them. Um, people who would benefit from doing things like EMDR, mind's eye work, guided imagery work, um, different types of trauma, re-experiencing what does mind's eye work mean? I haven't heard that phrase in a while and I want to make sure everybody understands. Yeah, it's fun. It's so interesting. Mind's eye work is so interesting because I feel like when we get started every time I'm like, I don't know if they're really going to get into it. I don't know if this is really going to have the effect that I, that I, it has usually. And, and it, it, 
it almost always does. It's very rare that it's not um, effective in some way. Mind's eye work is basically just harnessing the power of our brains and um, and meditative and contemplative space. So allowing someone to um, relax into not quite hypnotic induction, but sort of like a relaxed meditative state and then doing some guided imagery work and utilizing the power of the mind's eye to explore things that maybe have happened in the past or fearful things that we're fearful of happening in the future um, and doing some work in, in that way. Okay. Wonderful. Is that just out of curiosity? Cause I haven't, I haven't done that myself. I know what it is, but I haven't practiced it. Is there a lot of like, cause when they're going to go back and to revisit maybe something that is traumatizing, mm-hmm. do we utilize some resources or something to continue keeping them in that calm mm-hmm. state or yeah. So before we dive into re- any re-experiencing method, we'll do a lot of resourcing work and a lot of gotcha. psychoeducation and sort of experiential felt work on window of tolerance. So what is my window of tolerance? Where am I in it? I'll often talk to people about how the importance of our window of tolerance and trauma work is that we kind of get to the edges of it, but we don't go outside of it. So if we're just perfectly mm-hmm. in the middle and perfectly at ease, it's, it's not quite the working zone. But if we're kind of getting toward the edges, those of you who are yoga practitioners will know yoga teachers often say strength is built at the edge, right? We find our edges mm-hmm. and um, it's the same, I think, in trauma work. So we're looking to expand that window. We're looking to stay in it to a degree when we're doing the re-experiencing. And yes, if we need to take a break in resource, we do. So yeah. clients will sometimes become a little dysregulated during the work and then we pause and we reground. I really like that though, the edges, because if anybody out there is like, why would you want to push? Like, Oh, it's so uncomfortable. But I've talked a lot over the years and even in my book traumatized about building resilience or building that window of tolerance. It's, it's really the same, same phrasing, which is just different words to describe the same thing. And if we allow our trauma triggers to guide what we do, our world can get really small. Meaning let's say that I'm traumatized or triggered by loud noises. Mm -hmm. So I don't go anywhere where there's a loud noise. And if I happen to be out somewhere where a loud noise happens, I don't go there anymore. And so you can see how my world would kind of shrink. And what Lana's talking about is we have to push back against that and prove to our brain that it's going to be okay. Like you can go back out to that parking lot. And I'm pretty sure that car door is not going to slam right next to you this time. You know, it's like, and I know that's kind of a silly example, but it's like expanding that. It's like pushing on the edges of what we think is okay proving to ourselves that it won't cause us to be traumatized again, that we have control over that, keeping ourselves calm as possible and pushing out more helps us expand our life and grow out of the trauma response. You you know, does that make sense? Am I saying that? Yeah, I agree. And honestly, in my practice, um, I have sort of an opposite approach of what people expect, which is, you know, we want people to get triggered. Getting triggered is when Mm -hmm. we have an opportunity to do that, to teach our brains about actual threat and perceived threat. Most of the time when we're triggered, we're triggered by perceived threat. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what sets us off. And it it doesn't mean that our our system doesn't know the difference, but we have to prove to it or teach it to tell the difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Wonderful. Well, we're so glad you're here. We have six questions today, you guys. So the first question, we're just going to jump right in. This is a great question. They're all great, by the way. This question says, do therapists really not judge their clients? 
you guys are human too. So I can't see a reality where my therapist wouldn't judge me in some way. She's very kind, by the way. I'm not saying this based on experience, but I can't seem to get past this mental block because I'm convinced that there will be things my therapist will judge me about, which are the things that I really need to talk about, but haven't felt ready to talk about yet. Just curious. I thought this was a great question. I do too. You, you can go ahead and go first. I mean, yeah, and I'd love to hear your perspective on it too, Katie. I think this is a question that I get a lot, actually, and I'm happy that clients have the courage to ask. Um, trauma work is tough because there's a lot in there that can be shame-inducing for people who are sharing, and um, we can get into a, a conversation later about trauma and shame and how all that works, but... It's natural. I think it's human nature to worry that we're going to get judged. I mean, we're social creatures and developmental psychology says that if we're not accepted by our tribe, then we're in a lot of danger, right? We're real. If we get exiled because people are judging us too much, it's, it's over. Mm-hmm. So there's that, there's yep. still that drive, that sort of by this de- developmental sort of evolutionary drive to be accepted. So that's a, that's a, a big, it could be a big block for people. Um, do we judge? Of course, we're humans. Of course, we have, you know, knee jerk reactions and judgments about ourselves, others in the world, just like everybody. One of the things I love so much about being a clinician is that my job means I need to be on top of my stuff all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. I, the, the more I'm aware of my own trauma triggers, my own judgments, my own, the place I'm coming from, my um, unconscious bias, the, the more insight I have about myself, the more I can kind of put that stuff either aside or utilize it clinically. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the answer for me is that when I'm working with somebody, this idea of judging doesn't come up as much because my goal is to understand. I'm not coming to the table from a perspective of like questioning, judging, having preconceived ideas or opinions as much as humanly possible. Right. And we work hard to manage that because my curiosity, my focus is on why, what's happening. What do we do with this? How do we work with it? So I feel like for me, Katie, you can answer for yourself, but for me, cause I can't speak for every therapist is that it just doesn't come up as a judgment. It comes up, as a curiosity and as an interest to help whoever else. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the, the, the difficult thing for people to understand is just how different the therapeutic relationship is from other relationships, because the way that we enter into potential friendships or romantic relationships is a much more judgmental space because we're trying to assess who they are, what they like, what they don't like, how does it fit with us? Where if you consider a therapeutic relationship, it's not about, do you fit with me? Is this good for me? It's all about you and me understanding. That's why I love your like curiosity. Cause I feel like we get into this work because I find people so fascinating and I find it so interesting to understand how someone else operates and what caused what we're working on, right? What's this root and why is this tree of symptoms showing up and can we figure that out? And so yeah, I agree with you. Judgment just doesn't come up. So in a short answer, no, I don't judge my clients. And if I found myself doing that, that's on me. And that's part of my own work in therapy and in my peer support groups. I have like a couple of peer groups that I'm a a part of to help kind of manage difficult clients and talk about tricky cases or 
you know, a new research article that came out or any number of things, that's part of like, I feel like our work behind the scenes so that we can show up for you. And yeah, I know it's, it's hard for people to understand that the therapeutic relationship and how different it is, but that's what makes it beautiful is that it's, it's not really about us. It's about our patients and the, and judgment's just suspended because I think that's, you know, what allows the work to happen. Yeah. It's just not where we're coming from. But also I wanted to touch on something too, about the consultation. Um, if judgments come up, I love how you said that it's on us and it is. And sometimes it's helpful, like I, I was touching on earlier, and getting a sense of what's going on in the dynamic between in the relationship. So if if somebody's sharing something with me that's activating something in me, there are times where I can bring that to a supervisor or a peer consultation group and say, "Hey, I'm getting activated around this piece of what's going on with this client. What do you think about that?" And it may be really helpful in the work, and it and I can gain some insight from someone else and then bring it back to the session um, because there's a lot mm-hmm. of use of self. Yeah, there really is. Because something that I've always contemplated is if it's not specific to me, because let's say, for instance, I'm working with a patient with alcohol addiction. And let's say I grew up in an alcoholic home, that could be really triggering for me and activating if I hadn't already worked through it in my own, or it could even just be that there's certain things that remind me of that person, let's say that was harmful in my life. So that could be like an easy correlation. I could be like, oh, I know I need to get back into my own therapy because that's why I'm being activated. However, a lot of the time, if we're doing our own work as therapists, which if you're seeing a good therapist, they're doing their own homework, then when we're activated, it's usually a sign of something that other people in our lives are probably already experiencing. And I find that to be really helpful because sometimes, and I'm sure you've had this too, Lana, like I'll have patients come in and they're like, I don't know what's going on with this relationship or like my friend is this way and we'll as an outsider, I can see this pattern. And then if I find myself responding in a certain, like with a reaction, that's not really like me. And I'm like, this is really interesting. This is coming up for me. That can be helpful to my patient. Cause I can say, Hey, I've been thinking about this. And the other day I found myself kind of agitated and I traced it back to this kind of phrasing. Do you use that a lot with your friendships or with your relationships or when you try to describe what's going on with you? You know, it could, I know that's very simplified, but I think in a lot of ways we can use that to help our patients better see how this is playing out in other relationships. Because again, the therapeutic relationship is a really cool place to experience some of those patterns that maybe we just can't see otherwise because the other person's too reactive, you know, but we, we get to be kind of this like sounding board blank canvas to, to, to learn, help you teach us, and then to show what reactions kind of could come up or what we're seeing from the outside, you know, exactly. Yeah. So interesting, but that's a great question. And I want to make sure we answered everything. So we don't judge our clients. We are human too. Um, yeah. And I, I really like that Lana brought up about the, cause the person who asked this question said, you know, they're afraid they're going to be judged about the things that they really need to talk about. And I think that shame component is really, is really big. And if, if you're having a tough time opening up to your therapist, I think sometimes it's just helpful to tell them that that's happening. We don't have to have an answer and be able to open up. It's okay to just say, Hey, there's some stuff I know I need to talk about. I just, I have this mental block and that's a good place to start sometimes too. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, why do narcissistic people believe their past trauma means that their abusive patterns or behaviors towards others should be excused? Where do we draw the line between ending stigma and allowing people to abuse regardless of trauma or mental illness? I love this question. <laughs> Me too. 
take, take it away. So what jumps <laughs> out at me about this question is the use of the word narcissist. So mm-hmm. that adds another element, right? Trauma is trauma. And we know that there's a lot of, there are a lot, there's a whole constellation of symptoms that can go along with trauma, particularly early life chronic trauma um, that can manifest in different disorders, different occurring, co-occurring disorders. One of them is narcissistic personality. Um, Mm -hmm. They're not exactly the same thing, right? Narcissistic personality is an additional diagnosis. Yes. Like laying it on top of PTSD. There are methods that we use as clinicians with someone who has narcissistic personality disorder or traits thereof that are different than we might use with someone who has trauma who doesn't also have that personality type structure disorder on top of it. Mm -hmm. Um, We may, you know, there will be more emphasis on personal accountability, responsibility, kind of empathy building exercises and practices, things that um, a little bit more boundaried sort of um, assistance with containment too, because narcissistic personality can sometimes have a hard time with containment and be abusive and offensive. So those are going to be some added elements. So the answer is no, I'm never going to uh, condone or um, excuse behavior that's abusive to others based off someone's trauma, whether they have that personality or not. So even with people who have more traditional straightforward PTSD or complex PTSD, however you you want to describe it, I really wish Vander Kolk's diagnosis had made it into Uh the DSM. I know. (laughs) (laughs) He he beautifully, if anybody hasn't read Body Keeps the Score, I cannot recommend enough. It's definitely something you have to kind of in bites digest because it's a lot, but he mentions in there something about how false the DSM is, how slow and late to the game. And, and it was just beautiful. I was like, yes, that's how I feel well, about sure. it. Like, it's a great place it's to start, but we have to do some gymnastics in order to categorize our clients who have complex yes. PTSD because there's so many uh, categories they can fit in. But anyway, um, so yeah. even uh, with that, you know, I talk to my clients often about we're not responsible for our wounding, but we are responsible for our healing. And that's because it's, it is pretty common that we can be engaging in behaviors that are maladaptive needs meeting strategies that can be harmful to other people in our lives and harmful to our relationships. And some, you know, I have worked with patients quite a bit where there's a kind of a sense of, well, this happened and that was really unfair. Therefore I get to survive however I need to in my adult life. And I know the intention behind it is, isn't, malicious or, you know, trying to be hurtful. It's more about sort of an entitlement to any behavior Mm -hmm. based off of how unfair life has been. And my answer is kind of hard to take in, but the answer is yes, life is unfair. Yes. It's not your fault that this happened. Um, and you had to overcome a lot in your life and no, it doesn't mean that you know, it's okay to hurt other people. So, you know, I think any clinician who's been in this field for a while and done their own work, because for us, you know, if, if we haven't done our own work, we can also kind of fall into a codependent trap. And, oh, totally. Yeah. So easily. No boundaries. We can yeah. become completely, like, affected by our patients. That's why people always wonder how we don't get burnt out. And I'm like, uh, boundaries and self-care. <laughs> 
like hearing all these awful stories. I mean, I've heard some of the most incredibly tragic, awful things that are just, you know, makes me so angry, like for the client, mm-hmm. you know, like how could your yeah. caregiver do this? And so we can get kind of caught up in that and say, oh my God, yeah, you know, you're just surviving however you need to. But that's once we get through like understanding how to really work with trauma in effective ways, I think it moves into helping people have accountability and responsibility for themselves as adults, no matter what. And there are ways to do that. We're not just throwing people to the wolves, like, oh, you, be- you know, you better act better. You know, we're not like mm-hmm. there are methods. <laughs> it's just, right. It's not about free reign. Or- yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I loved what you said. It's not, uh, we're not responsible for the wounding, but we're responsible for the healing and, things can happen to us. And the person who harmed us is responsible for that in the same way that if we're going to go out into the world and we're going to harm other people, we're responsible for that. And I, I talk a lot, maybe it's because my specialties are eating disorder and self-injury work, which, you know, very close to addiction, um, borderline personality disorder, all of that stuff is, is right in my wheelhouse. And I think a lot of conversations I've had with patients over the years is that, you are responsible for your actions and understanding how your actions affect others can actually even help you in your own healing because then you, you can understand, you know, it's almost like the, the shame and guilt and embarrassment spiral we can get caught in when it comes to trauma can make us think, Oh, I brought this on myself or I must have done something to cause that. And I'm like, no, can't you see like this causal reaction? And, and you did this to someone and that hurt their feelings. That's why that relationship is struggling. Can you track back and look in your life, how that person harmed you? what that did, you know, and I know it's not that simple. Yes, it takes a lot of work, but just because something happened to happens to us, doesn't mean we can go out in the world and just be an asshole. That's not okay. You were all responsible. Every day I wake up and I take responsibility for the actions I take better or worse. I might be well rested, fed and healthy. And so I'm making good decisions. I got a lot of, you know, resilience built up or other days I might be short tempered. I didn't sleep. I haven't eaten in three or four hours. I'm starting to get agitated and I, I make bad decisions. I say things I don't mean, and I'm responsible for both of those things. And narcissists are no different. I, I will never support this hiding behind trauma as if it gives me carte blanche to, to treat people poorly. I feel like that's how we get caught in these so, and it's not even just families, but for the sake of this, it's usually like familial cycles of abuse where like I've been abused. Therefore I abuse my children and they abuse their children. It's like, we, you know, generation after generation, we have these, these cycles and these issues. And, you know, if people are going to work on it, we have to stand up and say, not, not, not on my watch. You know, I'm going to do my best. No one's perfect. And this doesn't mean that we can never hurt somebody's feelings or say something rude or do something we regret. But the difference between, potentially a person who's not taking responsibility would be to never apologize or acknowledge or communicate. And on the flip side, we'd be doing those things saying, I'm so sorry. You know, even though it all sucks to eat crow, you guys, I know when you apologize, you have to apologize and you just, Oh, you hate it, but you do it. You try to communicate. And most importantly, we try again next time to do better. And you know, we're all works in progress, but yeah, no diagnosis gives us the ability to harm others without any responsibility. That makes a friend sense. of mine yeah. says something great. She says, when we know better, we can do better. Right. So mm-hmm. we're not saying that until there's another understanding or another way, or even insight or awareness, you know, a lot of people come into treatment without any insight or awareness into this and they're hurting people who don't even realize it. And so it's, mm-hmm. you know, we're not coming in with the blame game initially, but once you know better, the responsibility then is to do better. So 
pacing yes. is important. Agreed. And I have a random question because you mentioned working with narcissists and I, other than having the odd parent that is one, I have not had one come into my practice or even into treatment. I'd have to really dig in my brain, but nobody, nobody stands out and I feel like they would stand out. Do you, so I want to say something also, because one of a good friend of mine, who's a psychiatrist, Dr. Barry Lieberman had said to me years ago that he believes addiction to be a narcissistic tendency because he's like, we're always seeking to serve ourselves in the addiction. I don't know if you agree with that. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And then number two, what I was kind of getting to is, do you, do you find you treat a lot of narcissists? Like what's, if so, what's that like? Cause I don't have that experience. Sure. So the first part, I think addiction is so complex. It's certainly ha- inherently has some elements that are self-serving and narcissistic. I think it's a little bit of a generalization to say that across the board. Cause I know a lot of people who struggle with addiction and, and yes, have hurt others and yes, been selfish and self-centered and also carry a huge amount of remorse, guilt and shame around it. And, yes. you know, don't, the narcissistic injury isn't there quite the same way. So I think, I think that mental illness is complex. Addiction is complex. Yeah. It, yes. It's complicated. And, and I agree with you there too, because I think addiction in, in, it will have some behaviors or some parts of it that are narcissistic and self-seeking. However, I don't find, at least in my experience, addicts that I've worked with aren't, aren't boastful. Don't think it's almost, it's a coping skill. They're numbing out. Usually we're trying to cope with something that happened and we don't have any other tools. And moral injury is a, is a big deal in addiction recovery. Things that we've done that are hurtful that we then feel really terrible about. And so there's work, there's moral injury, injury work that gets done around that. Mm -hmm. And in terms of narcissistic personality, I mean, definitely work with a lot of people who have traits. I don't know. I mean, I, I know I'm sure I've worked with some that would meet full criteria. Um, I have worked with some that would meet full criteria. And for me, cause my specialty is the trauma work piece. So I'm going to kind of stay in my lane here. I know there are probably uh-huh, like, that's fair. This is one thing I wanted to say actually early on, which I'm going to say now is like a little disclaimer, you know, these, uh-huh. these questions and these topics are so wonderful and broad. And, you know, I'm speaking from my experience, my research, my understanding. And so, answers may differ. You know, Katie's answer may be slightly different than mine and another therapist's answer might be slightly different. So I don't want to pretend that like, like my answer is like the only one. <laughs> this is just, no, it's just another wonderful yeah, perspective. Just where I'm coming from. So in my lane and working with patients who have these tendencies, there is a difference. So I'm, I'm going to be mindful and cautious to not lean so heavily on um, standing up for the wound, which is what I might do for someone who doesn't have narcissistic mm. traits, like getting into, you know, this was unfair. It wasn't your fault. I mean, yes, we're not going to say it was there yeah. anybody's fault and they were a kid, but we're, I'm not going to lean in that direction as heavy. I'm going to acknowledge and validate, and we're going to look at the trauma that's there, how it is manifesting in this person's life maladaptively, what the, what the symptoms are, and maybe doing some, boundary tailored work on the traumatic incidences to do some desensitization. I might use something like EMDR more than inner child work or so, for mm-hmm. example. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. I could see that being more effective just, potentially because feel it out because, mm-hmm. and again, I don't want to general overgeneralize. There might be someone who has narcissistic traits where inner child work might, might be really appropriate, but just in general, looking at the tendency, I'm going to be leaning a little more toward let's do some desensitization work and then focus heavily on empathy building, um, connecting relationships. Yeah, Containment boundaries. Yeah. Stuff like that. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I was always curious because it's something, like I said, that hasn't shown up for me a lot. However, I've dealt with a lot of the narcissistic abuse trauma on the other mm-hmm. end, like from children, especially of narcissistic parents. Um, I was always in my mind, I think even as a clinician, but also just as a human, I'm like, I would be surprised if they f- would seek help. Like, I think that would be really mm-hmm. hard for them to admit that something was wrong because that's the most difficult issue that I deal with it with families, especially is trying to get, let's say a mother or a father to just acknowledge the pain that happened because of some of their actions. That's like sometimes like trying to wrangle cats. And yeah. So most of the time they're not coming in for narcissistic personality. They're coming in for other things. And then we, Mm -hmm. we determine that, or we see that, that element and it becomes part of the clinical treatment and part of what we're looking at. But yeah, that's not usually like usually addiction or things that, (laughs) you know, can really take your legs out from under you, you know, and and then find yourself in treatment. And then we're like, Oh, you know, let's, let's look at this. Let's look at this pattern of behavior. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. It's just interesting because I, because it, it is so complex, and I think the the reactivity of narcissistic or people with narcissistic tendencies, let's say, it, that's a huge space to work in that might not be. You know, it's 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 funny. I feel like at least, like I said, with the few parents and people that have come into my office or in my practice as a whole, is like I feel like it's kind of like a minefield and I'm just trying to like navigate without setting them off so that we can still do the work in those safe spaces that I have discovered, you know, um, that's so fascinating. I mean, there's so much you can talk about with narcissists and you know, what it's, what it's like and that it is born out of trauma. I think a lot of people, you know, maybe didn't even know that. And that could be at least be a, a key learning again, not that it condones the behavior, but at least explains it and can maybe help you understand someone a little bit and offer empathy, maybe that they're not able yeah. to offer, um, to themselves. So Yeah. Very helpful. Thank you. That was just interesting to me. Okay. We're moving on to question number three. This question asks, what is the difference between empathy and codependency? Love this question. I've been told that I have both and was actually diagnosed with codependent personality traits. I know that I have a hard time separating my own emotions from others. I become extremely unsettled if I believe someone else is uncomfortable or not happy. I'll even get irritable when someone else has negative emotions. I have to be really careful with the movies and shows that I watch because even the characters having negative emotions disturbs my own. What does codependency and empathy stem from? Thank you for all of your insightful answers. Of course. Uh, That screams boundaries to me. (laughs) (laughs) It really does, doesn't it? Uh, Empathy. So empathy is this beautiful quality that we have and strive to have in a way that's helpful and manageable and workable in our lives. Um, I've had quite a few people come into my office saying that they are, you know, highly sensitive and um, very empathetic to the extent that it's sort of like this person's asking about, like interferes with their lives and kind Mm -hmm. of does create that narrowing of, their world because 
you have to watch, you know, every TV show and movie and commercial and person. I mean, that's, you know, it's a lot. Yeah. It's like, it's a lot of emotional yeah. weight. Yeah. If we're absorbing I think it. Yeah. I mean, so I'll, again, I'll talk about my understanding of this stuff because there's tons out there. I did, um, Pia Melody's training post-induction therapy. Pia Melody worked at the Meadows and created their whole survivors program and all that. And I did the purple training, which was very interesting. And it, just to circle back for a second, it was in that training. And I asked the, mm-hmm. my trainer, who's wonderful once, um, what about narcissistic personality? And she's like, you wouldn't use this model. <laughs> <laughs> this is the opposite of what you would do. Um, but anyway, so when I did that training, um, the, the definition of codependency there talks about developmental immaturity and the lack of personal boundaries. So um, not having been taught how to have what's called internal boundaries as opposed to external boundaries mm-hmm. or external boundaries are more of what we are used to hearing about. Like I have the right to have my space and I have the right to be touched only by yeah. people who want to touch me and not have people go through my things without asking and all of that. And internal boundaries are kind of what we choose to let in. And I really love, to me, this kind of connects a bit to Victor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning, um, talking about, you know, living in these most incredibly untenable situations. He, for those of you who don't know, he's a psychiatrist who wrote the first draft of his book, Man's Search for Meaning, in one of the concentration camps in, I don't know if it was Germany. I want to say it was... um, Gosh, I can't, Austria, maybe I can't think of where, but I think it was Austria, but it might be Germany, but I could look it up, but either way, yes, he was in a concentration camp because that's like the ultimate example of, you know, when we talk about life circumstances, not being what we want them to be and having to manage somehow and hit one of his messages, one of his messages, obviously was in finding meaning, which is a big part of what that book is about, but kind of another underlying message, which I love and utilize a lot is the idea of an internal boundary system there, even in those conditions where, you know, everything is controlled, everything is looked at. um, People are being humiliated all the time. Your dignity is being stripped from you. There's an element of, of, of us that we can preserve. And we preserve Mm -hmm. that by in some ways having an internal boundary system and in some ways having something that we're working toward, right? Like, or somebody that we back to these connections and life that keep us, you know, going and make us feel like we're connected to something bigger. And the internal boundary piece is huge because inside our skin, right, we get to choose. And the way Pia puts it, which is interesting is, you know, you catch something before it comes in and you look at it and you say, is this true for me? Is this not true for me? Or do I need more information? And the reason I think she had these questions is because Sometimes we need to take it in. Sometimes someone's saying mm-hmm. something to us that's like helpful for us to know, or, you know, we've hurt their feelings or we've acted in some kind of way that's outside of a, you know, our moral or morals or ethics. And we need to kind of take in what happened and we need to like tolerate the shame and the guilt and we need to grow from it. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we absolutely don't need to take it in. It's not ours to own. And sometimes we don't know. We need more information we need to ask. So for for back to the empathy and codependency piece, if we don't have anything that's keeping like a, like a gatekeeper to keep things out or let things in, then yes, other people's energy, other people's emotions, anger, pain, shame, fear, all of that will just come right in. Um, and empathy can then become something that feels 
unhealthy or painful or toxic even. Another piece of codependency, I think, is this idea that we're not okay unless other people are okay, which also kind of falls under this broad umbrella of developmental immaturity, which really at the root of it, because in substance abuse treatment, we hear a lot about like enabling behaviors and codependency behaviors, but I think really at the root of it is I'm not okay with someone else being in pain or uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm not okay with it, then I'm going to do anything I can to stop that. But really what that does is it robs the other person of their practice and being able to tolerate their own discomfort and distress. And I see that a lot in group in group therapy and dynamics. There's a lot of rescuing that goes on because our discomfort with other people's discomfort becomes apparent. And it's something Mm -hmm. that's really helpful. I think to call out in group and have a discussion on, um, and really bring it back to the person who's uncomfortable with someone else's discomfort. And that's, that's Mm -hmm. right. That's your work. The person who's asking the question. So empathy is wonderful. Codependency, you know, um, can be, can be problematic. I think interdependence is the the healthier, you know, we're not islands, we're not anti-dependent. Um, so I can sit like, let's say Katie and I are having tea and she's really upset. I can sit with her in her pain and be empathetic and, but you don't have to pick it up and take it as your own. I can resonate with what's going on for her. I can, you know, share experience that might be helpful, but I'm not going to, you know, stuff tissues in her face and say, Oh, it's fine. You're going to be fine. You know, or kick it on Mm -hmm. and drop through the floor myself. I want to, this leads to something that's also interesting. And something that I share a lot with my patients is when we don't have enough esteem or a strong enough sense of ego strength and sense of self or self-esteem, we will drop through the floor pretty easily. This can happen not only if we've done something hurtful, but also in this case of like having an over, having no internal boundaries and the sense of empathy that's just too um, like un- uncontained. We can also mm-hmm. drop through the floor with that. But then what happens is it, be, it actually ends up being something that's self-absorbed. Because then the rest of the mm-hmm. world, the other people then have to come rescue us from being through the floor. And so yeah. in order to really be in relationship where we're able to, to have healthy exchanges, we need to be able to keep ourselves in, in enough esteem that we're not falling through the floor, even if, right? Totally. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Yeah. And I, I love that. It's, it's a beautiful way to think about it. And I think... Yeah. I mean, there's not, not a ton to add here. I think in short, to kind of summarize a little bit of what Lana's saying is like empathy is the ability to feel for other people. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us great partners and great people, uh, colleagues, friends, family, whatever. Right. If I can feel for Lana and be like, that must be terrible. I'm so sorry. Right. That feels good for both of us. I'm sharing in the pain. I love that old adage. It's like, um, I I think it's like in relationships, every pain is halved, every joy is doubled. And I think of that kind of in a healthy manner where it's like, I can, I can shoulder it with you. I can sit in it with you. It's not mine, but I can, I can hold the space and we can be in it together and I can let you know it's okay. And I'm sorry. Right. That's empathy. Codependency is you feel that way. Me too. Nothing happened to me, but I feel it too. And in it, it can be, it can turn into self-serving behavior 
because then people have to come rescue us. And that can happen too. If you have two people in relationships that are both that codependency on both ends, then it's like rescue, 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 rescue. And we can get caught in this loop of pain and it can feel very toxic, but it, you know, it can also on the other end, it can just mean that we have no internal boundaries and we allow, I love that. Like, do, is this for, you know, like, look at it and it, do I need more information? Is it for me? Is it not for me? And we, it's okay to ask that. I think a lot of people struggle to think it's okay to consider whether or not be, because we can assume, or we could have grown up in an environment where that was what was expected was to like feel for people or to fix. And, um, I have an older video. I talk about like uh, listening to learn instead of listening to fix or listening to win. And I feel like in this case, a lot of people can react with the listening to fix. That's that rescue urge. Like, Oh, because I can't handle you feeling bad. Therefore I want to fix it and make it go away so that then I can, because that's soothing to my system. And overall, I think it's just important for each of us to recognize where it's those, it's boundaries. And if anybody out there is like, Oh, I don't even know where to start. That seems so overwhelming boundaries. Oh my God. When you start to take something on that you don't have an origin story for, why do I feel so agitated? This doesn't make any sense. Today was actually pretty lovely. Be curious about that. Where did it come from? Where did we pick it up? Whose luggage did we pick up when we walked down the street? You know, like there's people we probably encountered who told us something. We're like, oh, I got that. And we just took it on and it's not ours. We didn't take a chance to, to look at it. So start noticing if an emotion or an experience doesn't have an origin. We don't know where it came from. Or if we sense discomfort after spending time with someone, if we feel very exhausted or we feel really agitated or just different, just start paying attention. Because I feel like the the one thing I will, I do a lot of DBT or dialectical behavior therapy. And I love them. I know people talk about mindfulness now a little too much and it's kind of lost its oof, but being mindful of our emotional experience as people, there's so much valuable information there. And if we can just pay attention to that, that there, there's so much gold because that's when we'll be able to tell our body's already telling us what boundaries are there. We're just not upholding them. We're getting the sensations. It's almost like our alarm system's going off. Like someone's trespassing. Something isn't, you know, it's not right. And if we take a second to listen, the next time, maybe we can try it differently and see if that improves how we feel. Um, I think it's kind of the reason like being a therapist, just you're forced. I feel like you must I personally, it was such intensive work for me at the beginning, um, in my own therapy to try to manage people always ask, how do you not take everything home with you? And I'm like, it's not mine. It's theirs. I can sit with them. I, I can make it safe. We call it like holding the space, right? Meaning like this is a space that can contain all the things there's, there's no limit. It's okay. You can dump it here. I can sit with you in it. We can parse through it. We can try to make sense of it, but I don't take it home with me. I don't package it up, put it in my own luggage and take it off. We can just leave it there. And I think, yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about it. It's like such a, there's so much we could get into when it comes to this, just because boundaries are so key for everybody. And I'm glad people are talking about it more, but we definitely haven't talked about it. Well, it's one of those things that when I go through boundaries work with people, oftentimes what I hear is, why didn't I learn this earlier? It should be taught like in yeah, elementary like, school. Why isn't this taught in school? You know, and that's it's just true mm-hmm. because when we're little, the reason we get carried emotion, things like carried shame, carried pain, is because we don't have a boundary system. We're not born with one. 
you know, we just, everything just comes right in. We soak it up like little sponges and we're supposed to learn how to have this protective boundary, which isn't a wall, by the way, right? It can be flexible. No, it's a, like, I think of it dashed lines. That's how we used to draw it in school. Because <laughs> we know closed systems will eventually fail. So and we always need to have an open system. Yes. So we can't have walls. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is... Roxy's talking. She agrees. It is, you know, for sure. And Mm -hmm. I I will share just one other little tip that might be helpful for people who are struggling with this concept of an internal boundary system, because it's a little bit harder to kind of make tangible and conceptualize. Some people are able to do imagery, imagery work around this and to imagine either like around you or even just like in your sort of like solar plexus chest sort of emotional area like a shield that has a color so like purple or pink or blue Mm -hmm. or green and and if we're not doing like an opaque wall we're doing something that can kind of you can see through a little bit it's not it's it has some permeability but you have the ability to strengthen it and make it more opaque as you need or to loosen it and make it more fluid as you need. So it's like, it's a workable energetic imagery exercise that you can use to remind yourself that you don't have to just let in anything in and that you have different boundaries with different people. Yeah, I love that because there are people, and I know everybody out there can relate, there are people who just get under our skin. But whenever I even find myself saying that, I'm always like, because you let them. Like, I don't have to let them, right? That doesn't have to... I mean, I think being online has helped me not let people under my skin. I'm like, you don't know me. Nope. I looked at it. Not for me, <laughs> you know, it, but it, again, it's, it's a practice. So I love that imagining like hardening. I think of it like a shell, like it gets thicker, hard, and then it gets softer with people when we really like with our therapists or close friends and family, people who we can really trust. Um, yeah, that's beautiful. That's great. Thank you. Okay. Let's make sure we answer everything. Sometimes I get I get off on my own tangents here. Okay, difference between empathy and codependency. Definitely answered that. Um, where do they stem from? We talked about that lack of boundaries. Yes, we've got it. Okay, moving on to question number four. It says, hello, Katie and guest, Lana. How do you get yourself to believe it's not your fault? I was sexually abused as a child starting around age seven. And I know I'm supposed to say it's not my fault. My therapist tells me it's not my fault. So do others. But when it comes down to it, I still have a hard time believing these words. There's a lot of abuse I can't remember, but have not fully forgotten all of it. It makes me frustrated at the point of why couldn't I either just forget all of it or remember it all. Only having fragments leaves so many unanswered questions, and I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to get the answers to them. He's only four years older than me. Oh, child-on-child sexual abuse can be really, really difficult. And the things that he told me are so ingrained in my head, like you led me on, you started it. Those words play over and over again and cast out because I can't remember how it all started. It makes me wonder what or how I could have done that. What there's a great so question. I know there's so much there. I know as much time as we need. People love this kind of stuff. It's helpful for everybody. Where do I start? Two things that jumped out at me kind of as themes here are the fault, the blame, the shame, and also memory because she also or he or she mm-hmm. also touched on i can't remember all of it i can only remember parts of it i'll start there because i feel like that's kind of a quicker answer um traumatic memory yes. is inherently uh spotty and 
um, mostly sensory based, the parts of our brain that are responsible for kind of imprinting linear memory go offline. So really what our systems are trying to preserve are the most important elements of what's happening in order to avoid it it, in happening again. So Mm -hmm. we'll remember the way something smelled, looked, felt, um, tasted even, but not so much, you know, the cognitive sort of executive function, prefrontal cortex, like where, when, what, yeah, you, organization of things. Those timing. Are yeah. So it's very, very survival oriented. So basically our, the parts of us that are more animal survival instincts are just kind of kicking in saying, well, whenever I smell whiskey, I'm going to run the other way. You know, it's just that kind yep. of a thing, you know, whenever I see a green lamp, I'm ducking, you know, yep. and that's why we get yep. these, tr- that's why we get these triggers, right. That are often like, it's like, how could yeah, we feel like it yeah, comes out of nowhere. It's sensory yeah. based. It's you know, it, um, so that's that piece. So I understand that it's frustrating. A lot of my patients are frustrated by that. What I often say is, is we are not like the judge, jury, court of law. We are working on the trauma. So yeah, it doesn't completely matter if you have all the facts exactly right in the right order. What we're working with is the experience of it and how it's affecting us in our life today. And that can be yeah, and little, I love that. And that can be a little tricky because I think once we start to get some of that healthy, like righteous anger about what happened to us, it becomes important mm-hmm. because we're meaning making machines. Like I want to know. I want to yeah. know the answer. I want to know what happened. I want to know where. I want to know why. And so some of trauma work is coming to an acceptance that we may not have all the exact answers that we want. And I'll always tell yeah, you, and that's hard too. Some of it's like even grieving that loss of that memory. Sometimes people don't remember whole swaths of their childhood and and have a tough time coming to terms with that because the memories can be only mm-hmm. in their body. Or I only remember how a little bit yeah, of how I felt. Right, exactly. You know, I, I was just about to say what I usually tell my patients is mm-hmm. inherent in every yeah. trauma process is also a grief process. We're grieving. We're grieving yes. the loss of our innocence. We're grieving what we didn't get, what we should have gotten, what happened. We're grieving the loss of memory, things like that experiences. So that grief is healthy, right? It's a healthy part of a trauma process. So there's that. Yes. The, it's not my fault or it is my fault. I think that comes, I mean, again, this is, I'm basing it off of the question. There's so much more to it. There's so much more information I'd want to have about the circumstances in order to answer Mm -hmm. this more completely. But usually when we're really little and things like this happen to us based off where we are in our developmental process, we aren't capable of understanding it as anybody's fault, but ours, because when we're little, mm-hmm. we're pretty egocentric and we, and we, that's, that's yep. natural. It's just us. That's all we understand, right? There's still mu- so much to still learn and, and gather. That's why I, I love little kids, how they tell you their stories mm-hmm. of the day. It's always me, 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 I, mm-hmm. I, I, because it's like they want you to walk along with them. All they know is their perspective. We can't even imagine being in other people's shoes yet. It, we're just trying to understand who we are in this world. And I think as an adult, sometimes it's hard to remember what it was yeah. like. Absolutely. Because it, once we start to get socialized into not being so self-centered, um, it becomes mm-hmm. this like bad thing to be self-centered. So it's hard to remember that there was a time where that's all we knew and that's all our brains allowed us to understand. The other piece of this that's important is 
um, evolutionarily again, survival mechanism. Uh, so that, that sense of if I'm not getting the care I need, or if I'm getting hurt, it's my fault is kind of this desperate survival mechanism in that then, um, it, because it's intolerable for at that developmental stage, an infant or a young child to think that there's anything wrong with the caregivers because that's too scary. Mm -hmm. So for us mm -hmm. to have something to be wrong with us, that's a little bit more taller. It's easier, right? Yeah. So when I think about this, when I explain it to people, it's often like, again, we're, we're working with the parts of our brain that are not as developed, right? Like the kind of animal basic survival. So our survival system isn't thinking, you know what, later on in life, this is going to cause a lot of problems. Not I know it's like, we have to get through this. We have to survive. Like, we're just going to like, not like completely decompensate. Right. Like, that's all that mm -hmm. our brains are trying to, and our systems are trying to prevent from happening. So yeah. Hence dissociation exactly. memories. Yeah, right. So all that is like, just, again, like very desperate, basic survival. Interestingly, shame. Shame is the only emotion that is strong enough to interrupt proximity seeking. So little ones who are being abused by people who they're supposed to be able to trust, whether it's a sibling or a caregiver or a close friend, um, this is more, this is a little more with caregivers, but the concept is similar. Um, it's very confusing and, and impossible to tolerate when the person you're, you want to go to for comfort is the person that's hurting you. So we mm -hmm. will experience shame and what does shame make us want to do? Hide. With yeah. Hide or harm ourselves. Right. It's like, I need to not exist. Something must be wrong with me. This person is supposed to care for me. So I must be doing something again, very mm -hmm. egocentric, but that's, that's the only way we can see it. And the only way we can try. And I always tell people when we're traumatized at a young age, we're trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. And we don't even have all the information because we're so young. Right. So think of like, just even, I always talk about being a detective for things. It's like, there's just, we just don't have all that info. And what, what can we do? We can blame ourselves again, egocentric. So I don't know what's going on. This doesn't make sense. The only thing that makes sense is that I'm messed up. Right. I and so when we can't go to that person because they're dangerous, right? The shame keeps us from seeking proximity. So that's where we see self-injury. That's mm -hmm. where we see rocking, head banging, different ways yeah. of soothing when we can't go or won't go to our caregiver because we feel shame, but the reality is the caregiver is the one who's causing harm and actually dangerous. Right. So that yeah. concept. So yeah, that, that's like the very brief, why do we feel like it's our fault? Those are the reasons it's very biological. It's very scientific. It's not to do with, you know, you or anybody who's experienced trauma inherently being like messed up or screwy. It just is the way we perceive things when we're young. What do you do about it? Because that's part of the yeah. question. What do we do about it? Right? Your therapist yeah. has said it's not your fault. Your friends have said it's not your fault. You know you're supposed to believe it's not your fault, but we still feel like it's our fault, right? My answer to that question is um, inner child work. And um, mm -hmm. so, so working with the part of us that's still kind of stuck at that developmental stage and bringing to that part our adult understanding in an experiential way is usually what's most powerful. So if someone could just tell us that we believe it, that would already happen. 
Yeah, we'll be done, all, done so with because, already. So because that doesn't work, <laughs> it's there needs to be some kind of experiential process, either with bilateral stimulation. So I use sometimes like EMDR tappers without mm-hmm. using the actual EMDR protocol because I feel like bilateral, there's some research out there now that talks about bilateral stimulation being the reason it works is because it's, it's um, asking for dual awareness to be aware of the tappers buzzing and to also be aware of the thing you're thinking about. Oh, interesting. Hmm. I know it's soothing for a lot of my patients. Um, Mm -hmm. talking about the butterfly tap where you tap on your left and right shoulders. So you can use something like that, like a bilateral type stimulation or, um, like a psychodrama or, uh, Mm -hmm. some type of mind's eye work, something to kind of even, uh, sensory motor psychotherapy or somatic experiencing some body work, something to get in an experience with the part of you that feels like it's your fault. And when I explain to people how trauma work actually works, because it's kind of elusive, you know, like what's happening, yeah. what does healing actually mean? Really what we're looking at is a bottom up, top down process, bottom up in meaning our more primitive systems and our more primitive understandings, kind of connecting mindfully and intentionally with our current understanding and ability to think and reason when we're not activated. That's why trauma work has to be done within the window of tolerance because otherwise you're just re-traumatizing yourself. So bringing those two things together to meet is what really helps to sink the information in a little bit deeper. So what sounds like is happening is this person who's asking the question is kind of in up, up in here too much saying it doesn't make sense logically. It doesn't make sense logically. Why can't I believe this? Because the bottom up prop parts, what's missing. So we need to bring both yep. into play and any therapist who does trauma work will be able to do that in whatever way they, they operate or whatever modalities they use. So it's a good question. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, they're definitely not alone. It's a lot to unpack because especially in this case, because it's like child on Mm -hmm. child sexual abuse, and that can be like a total mind fuck for lack of a better term, because not all the time, but a lot of times abused children abuse other children. And so we can think, well, it's not their fault. They were a child too. So then we don't have a perpetrator. And then we feel like again, right? Shame. I must've done something especially for a perpetrator who's another child says, Mm -hmm. you led me on. What I would encourage this person to do is when you're doing the inner child work, if you're able to find photos of yourself around the age of seven, sometimes that can help us to see just how little we were and how incapable we were of leading someone on sexually. Because the thing that we're forgetting as an adult is it is at seven years old, we don't even have the mental capacity for sexuality yet. It's like, we don't act in sexual ways. We don't think in sexual ways. Our body's not even ready for that. If we talk about developmentally, it just isn't there. And so often we forget because adult us is like, maybe mm-hmm. I did, you know, I could lead people mm-hmm. on. Cause yeah, me at 38 could lead someone on, but me at seven could not. And there, you know, and anyway, sometimes that can help to bring that, the photo or something in where you, so you can, cause I know a lot of us can struggle to get in touch with that age of us when things happened, it can feel very dangerous, feel very triggering and, or it can just feel like it's off limits in some way. Um, maybe embarrassment, shame start to push us out. Um, but that can sometimes help tap in. And I also find 
uh, an inner child work letter writing can be another way in another kind of conversation we can have. And again, it's that kind of like bottom up, top down where we're bringing like adult us to meet more primitive child us and like, um, offering the validation and the support and the understanding from adult us to child us and child us telling, trying to communicate what's really happening and, and what we don't understand exactly. essentially. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. That, that communication. Yeah. And also with the child on ch- the child and child um, sexual behavior that can feel certainly coercive and coercive and abusive. Sometimes it's, you know, it's play. Sometimes it's natural exploration. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, there's nothing, nothing pathological about it. I mean, kids are not sexual beings yet, but they're certainly sexually curious and explore and, mm-hmm. and sex play is something that happens, you know, when we're young. The difference is if, and what it sounds like in this case, it feels coercive. It, the, the kid was yes, and manipulative years older. Um, and I've even worked with people who have had, who had sexual um, encounters with children their own age, and it felt coercive. And they didn't have a voice and they mm-hmm. couldn't say no. And it wasn't fun and it wasn't a game. And so that's very different energy behind yeah. it. So there's that. And also there is a perpetrator in those cases. It's just a lot of times it's whoever abused the kid. Right. So when we yes. have children who have been abused who then have inappropriate, uh, you know, sexual boundaries at a young, young age, the perpetrator is the adult, right? Yeah. Whoever introduced them to the sexual content, whether it was through sexual abuse with them or letting them watch porn or something, you know, any kind of inappropriate. And I, a clinical director yeah. of a facility that I didn't personally work at, but I had colleagues who worked at said she was like this very like gregarious kind of outspoken woman and did a lot of work with sexual trauma. And she used to say things like, I don't care if you were naked, doing handstands, you know, asking someone to mm-hmm. come have sex with you. If you were seven, you were not leading anybody on. Like, it, you were just, you're yeah. not old enough to consent period. End of story. It doesn't matter, yeah. you know? So. Yeah. And that is the truth. And in cases of child on child sexual abuse, the, the perpetrator can even be younger because what gives them power or what gives them this ability to coerce is the mm-hmm. knowledge of sex, right? They're going to use that against us kind of in for lack of a better term. And so don't think that just because someone's only a couple years older or our age or younger, that that means it couldn't have happened because it, it, it's still abuse and yes. it's still, you know, it's still trauma. Lots to unpack there. I think we, we answered as best we could. Obviously there's tons of things to, but please, whoever the person who asked the question, anybody else struggling with child on child sexual abuse or any kind of abuse, finding a therapist who understands trauma and inner child work will be incredibly healing and incredibly helpful. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hey, Katie, could you please explain the difference between borderline personality disorder and dependent personality disorder? I know both involve a fear of abandonment and attachment issues, but I'm having trouble figuring out which disorder resonates with me more. I had an emotionally neglectful mom and always got attached to teachers throughout high school and am now attached to my therapist. And I don't really know what to do. Do you think it might be BPD or DPD? Or do you consider those kinds of attachment problems to be complex PTSD since emotional neglect is a form of complex trauma? Love from Melbourne. D all of the above. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. We can kind of get polarized and think that it has to be either or people can have both. Um, yes. In the DSM-4, personality disorders were sort of categorized in these clusters. Um, that had sort of a different theme yep. or feel. And so a cluster, a personality disorder types were like odd eccentric B were emotional, um, 
dramatic. C um, was uh, anxious, avoidant, dependent types, mm-hmm. right? So um, mm-hmm. it sounds like that's one way we can kind of look at the the energy or the feel behind these two different ones. I like them being clustered. I did too. Did you? Everybody was like, oh, that's so wrong. And I'm like, no, because it's not as cut and dried as you try to make it out to be. And we can say it's more of an emotional type of personality disorder. We're having dysregulation and it's attachment based. That would be a B cluster. You know, it's just easier in my brain versus feeling like we have to pick one out. Which one? Yeah. Pick right. one. And so, and so it sounds like the two that that the question asker is talking about are one from the anxious, fearful cluster and one from the emotional dramatic cluster, um, which Mm -hmm. that can kind of speak to the difference, right? So when we're looking at dependent personality, it's more of a passive, subservient, desperate, clingy um, energy around seeking that attachment, seeking that um, attention to be attended to. And with borderline mm-hmm. personality disorder, while there's definitely still that wanting to be seen, wanting to attach, wanting attention and to be cared for, there's more, there's potential to have more of an element of like rage and demanding and kind of, um, the way they're asking for this need to be met looks a little different, has a little different feel. It's a little more emotional. It's a little more dramatic. Yeah. I feel like it's more dysregulated and Mm -hmm. dramatic um, because I feel because I work with a lot of borderline patients over the years. And I feel like the the difference would be a dependent personality disorder person is more needy, whereas a borderline personality disorder person is more lost. And what I mean by that is like a dependent person needs that other person because they, they're afraid they won't survive without them. And they often will endure horrific abuse and things just to have that connection. Whereas a borderline personality disorder person, I always call them like emotional burn victims, right? We're super sensitive in any perceived slight. We split. You're, you're bad. You're good. You're bad. You're all bad. That doesn't happen in a dependent person. So for the person who has this question, if you find yourself having volatile interpersonal relationships, loving, hating. Um, if you, you know, find yourself really like dysregulated easily and getting our feelings hurt. I, I hate that people use the term overreacting. Like it's a bad thing. Overreaction is just a sign. It's like a little red flag. We're like, Hey, something's going on here. If we find ourselves overreacting to things that don't seem to bother other people, that might be an indicator that we're more BPD versus DPD. You know, does that make, I feel like that's kind of how in my head I like, yeah, because there are overlaps for sure. And so, yes, so I can see how it would be kind of tricky to navigate. And then the question about, is it all PTSD related? I mean, it can be, (laughs) I know it's like throw that in the mix. It totally could be. (laughs) Most of the research I've read and Katie, you can comment on this too, is that BPD and dependent personality may not be exact disorders of trauma, but they are certainly trauma related disorders. So yeah. Uh, agreed. Um, the percentage agreed. is like astronomical, like in the nineties percent of people who have these personality yes. disorders have early life trauma in some way. So high, high, high correlation there, but not everybody who has trauma develops the personality disorder because we can't say it's a hundred percent causal, but 
yeah, again, going back to um, our natural resilience, some people are better able to weather life storms. Some of us aren't. And some of it, we all cope in different ways, right? Some of us might turn to addiction. Some of us might, you know, and I find um, at least my borderline patients, if we struggle with that, it's almost like we turn our anger or upset or whatever's happened inward. And that it, we struggle to feel like we know who we are. We don't know how to regulate our emotions. It can make it, I, if people always want to stigmatize BPD people online and it always frustrates me because I'm like, do you know how uncomfortable that would be to feel that way? Like they're just trying to manage again. It does. I'm not condoning behavior when we go out into the world and we harm other people, but it's just understanding someone's perspective and how, how uncomfortable that dysregulation and that feeling of people might leave me. I don't think I can oh survive God. that. Like just imagine feeling that that'd be very, very difficult and uncomfortable and just painful. Oh, even just the thought of it, I'm like, Oh, I can't imagine. And so, yeah, I feel like the, there is overlap to kind of like sum it up. There's a ton of overlap between these diagnoses. And to be honest, if none of these jumped out, you know, seeing a professional and getting properly assessed is going to be your best bet, but also know that diagnoses, it's not the end all be all. It's more important that you're able to you know, maybe jot down or communicate what you're struggling with, because those are the symptoms we want to work on anyway. So maybe we have a couple from PTSD that are really bothering us, a couple from borderline and some from, you know, dependent personality. We just want to make sure that you're getting the treatment that works best for you with what you're struggling with yeah, in your absolutely. life. Absolutely. And that goes without saying, I think for, I mean, that goes without saying, we should say for everybody who's asking questions. Yeah, for everything. Therapists <laughs> yeah. can properly assess, diagnose, and, and help you with treatment for sure. This is sort of just theoretical conversation that we're having. Um, yeah, totally. You brought up a point that I wanted to, Katie, you brought up a point that I wanted to kind of touch on, which is like the whole diagnostics thing in the first place. Because I've kind of been through my own journey with this, mm-hmm. you know, being a trauma person from the beginning, I just never really felt like the diagnoses ever fit what I was either doing for treatment or. Um, seeing in my patients. So I had a really hard time. I've recently um, come around to, you know, really diving even deeper and trying to understand diagnoses better. And I have a better relationship with them now, but um, really the purpose is so that we can communicate with each other as professionals. Like it's just way easier for me if I'm consulting with Katie about someone to say, Hey, I have this patient and she has some BPD traits and she also has some dependence traits. And I know that her family history is this. And like, can you help out rather than listing everything over and over and over again, we find that there are these similarities and we can categorize them. It makes our jobs easier. And it also makes our treatment, um, better because then we can look at what other people have done to treat the same thing and we can incorporate it into our exactly so it works well for the patient so that we can uh, make sure that we're treating what we need to treat and we're treating it in a way that's effective and helpful i've also found it to be at yeah. times helpful for clients because it can be validating like oh my god oh 100 percent. there's a name for this something that other people experience so much so that it's in a book mm-hmm. <laughs> you know Yep. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. No, I, I agree with that 100%. I think it's it's kind of like along my lines of thoughts about self-diagnosis because I got asked that over the years. And I always think if it helps you feel validated, that's fine. But you should always, you know, get another opinion because in my, from my perspective, it's always like with our expertise and our patient's experience, that's how we, we get better. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you're the expert on you and I, you know, we're the experts in the mental health field. And so putting our two heads together is going to help the most. But yeah, I agree with you. I have struggled off and on with diagnostic criteria, especially yeah. eating disorders. I'm like, 
come on for, it took them forever to get rid of like losing your period as I'm like, boys have eating disorders. Hello. Like where, where have you been? Um, apparently not seeing patients. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So, but yeah, I've, it, I struggle, but it, it is a place. I always think of it in my head. At least this helps me. I'm like, it's a place to start. We all need a place to start. That's where we'll start. <laughs> it's not where we'll end, but that's where we'll start. So <laughs> yeah. So limiting. Ugh. Okay. Our final question. Question number six says, Katie, I'm struggling with the reparenting process. I was neglected or emotionally abused when I was a child. And I understand that I have to give myself what my child version would have wanted and needed, but I don't feel like that's enough. Doing it myself helps, but I still feel like I want somebody else to do that. I know we have to learn to make it ourselves, but because, because we can't expect somebody to always be available, but how can I convince myself that that's enough? And there was a comment on this as well. It says, as an add-on, what exactly do you do to reparent yourself in a practical sense? I love so, this question. Um, a couple things I'm hearing in here too. One is I, I'm going to, I would like to speak to the practical piece because that's I think really important because the stuff uh -huh. can sound so like weird. Oh yeah. We're like woo woo in our head, like using terms that we're like, so what does that mean? <laughs> um, and also what I'm hearing in there is, um, being able to separate out adult appropriate adult attachment and relationship needs versus appropriate childhood attachment and relational needs. Mm. We can get those mm -hmm. confused when we're, when we have experienced neglect and, and abandonment and emotional abuse as kids. Um, Cause essentially kind of like we were touching on earlier, what's happening is that young part of us is trying to get those childhood needs met in adult relationships. And it doesn't work because it's in a yeah. We're not childlike. <laughs> yeah. Our caregivers are going to be able to anticipate. I mean, in, in an ideal world, our caregivers are, you know, completely devoted to us. They're anytime we need them can anticipate every need. You know, that's yeah. just not reality for adult relationships. No, no. Cause people are more independent at that stage. Right. And, um, I remember I had a patient, this is years and years ago, and I think I've mentioned it before in a podcast, but uh, there were little things that we could do in adult world that were appropriate, not a ton, but some were like things that, um, I think it was her mother, maybe it was her father had said like, Oh, we'll take you to Disneyland. And then they just never went and like said, it was going to be this day. You know, it was very, we just never didn't, couldn't expect anything. We never knew which parent we were going to get. Were they going to be happy mad? I was like, you should take yourself to Disneyland. You always wanted to go never gone as you know, uh, best. I was like, buy all the things, buy the funny ears. You can be goofy there. Nobody's going to judge you as an adult. People love Disneyland. And that's one very small example of something that we can do as adult us that could feel similar to what it would have as child us. But, but I, I, that's so important. I love that you said that because we often don't realize how hard it is to do the reparenting as an adult because we're not children anymore. And that's not appropriate. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just thought I'm like, I just want to like give that more space because it's such an, yeah, a key and, and piece. That's a great example. And we'll talk about some other ones of how we can do that in our adult lives that can be really healing. Um, but that interdependence that we touched on earlier, um, I think is an important concept here because that's what we're looking for in healthy adult relationships is interdependence. And what I heard in the question was, I know I'm supposed to be doing it for myself, but I also want other people to do it for me. And 
and at its core, at its purest form, that's totally appropriate. We're again, we are social creatures. We need connection. We need others. We regulate mm-hmm. each other. Co-regulation. Um, Dr. Shore wrote this amazing book on right brain to right brain um, connection and therapy, and how you know when and we know that when we're developing as little ones, right brain develops first, and it, because mm-hmm. we need to co-regulate with our caregivers. And so right brain to right brain connection with our parents is like integral in our development and being able to make these attachments and form these healthy relationships in later life. So knowing all that, it's no one is saying when we're talking about reparenting that that's it. Like you need to take care of yourself and your needs and yeah. nobody else gets involved. You know, that's a very lonely life and that's not what we want. Essentially what we're saying is, you need to make up the difference for yourself in the the needs that are only appropriate to be met by caregivers that weren't met. So then you're in a place where you mm-hmm. can get your adult attachment needs met in a healthy way. And you can feel this sense of being cared for and loved and, and seen and nurtured. I mean, we just did an, uh, and we do these um, weekly all staff and service trainings at my job right now. And, um, our new director of clinical operations did one, I think it was two weeks ago on, uh, attachment, uh, like an attachment sort of also sexual sex and exploration, like sexuality and attachment sort of connection type training. And it was really wonderful. Uh-huh. One of the slides was all these activities, um, and when you read through them, it was like bathing, nurturing, you know, playing, um, feeding, all these adjectives that you would think most people would say this is a parent-child relationship, but it can also be part- child partner relationship, right? Like we can do all these things with our partners yeah. in a very loving, nurturing way that's appropriate as, as adults, provided that we're doing what we need to do in order to get those early life needs met in, in like a reparenting type of experience and, and in therapy, because otherwise basically what it looks like is our demands are going to be too much for another person. And we're going to end yeah. up in this cycle of trauma repetition where we're getting abandoned over and over because we're asking yep. too much from our partners and they're eventually saying, no, I can't do this. We could have a whole other podcast on love addiction and love avoidance and all oh. this stuff. <laughs> but- totally. Because if we put that much pressure on a relationship, it'll either crumble or they have their own things to attend to and there's not going to be available. And then we're going to feel neglected again. And we're going to re-traumatize. We're going to think we're being abandoned. We're going to react out of that. And if the relationship wasn't already ended, we could potentially try to end it ourselves thinking I can't deal going back to like a lot of my BPD or complex PTSD type symptoms where we're like, holy shit, this could really do me in cut and run. I'm out. Can't handle it. Bye. And then we, then we're exactly. And it fulfills that narrative of no one's ever going to be there for me. I'm not Mm -hmm. good enough. Yep. I'm unlovable. Yes. Something's wrong with me. So the key there is, yeah. Yeah. Shame so the messages. key there is that, um, in, in doing the work of reparenting, we're, we're sort of priming ourselves to get that relief. Cause what I'm hearing in that question is I want, I want to feel this connection. I want to feel this love. I don't want to be denied it. And so that reparenting process helps primes us, helps to prime us to be able to receive that in a way that's doable. The other thing is, and this is where trauma work it can be a little, um, that grief process comes back for a lot of my clients. I'm like, yes. listen, in some ways that ship has sailed. Like 
we are not going to be able to go back. You're probably probably not going to get your mom or dad on the phone and have them like apologize in this heartfelt way or like try to go back. No, I wish, I wish there was some way to make sure that it's not reality. And so it's, that's the grief in this is that, you know, those needs weren't met in the way that they should have been. And that's sad and tragic. Mm -hmm. And we can walk and And anger inducing, right? I want to, I'm angry. Why didn't you show up for me? Why did you do this? Like, you know, expressing that outwardly healthy versus stuff in it deep. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. all that grief, that P that healthy and, you know, grief includes some anger, healthy grief includes some depression. It includes Mm -hmm. some of these stages, as long as we're moving and we're not stuck or stagnant, I think we're, you know, that's, we can, as therapists, we can walk with you through that. Um, and how does reparenting actually work? Well, there are tons of ways. Disney world was, you know, Katie mentioned is one, you know, kind of providing ourselves these things that we didn't get. Um, I always, not always, I talk to my patients about, um, as adults, the, the parts of us that can still be creative, spontaneous, um, sort of joyful, uh, play. We can play as adults. It might not look Mm -hmm. exactly the same, but pottery class, art class, um, breaking out the Play-Doh, you know, here and there, like the watercolors, um, all of this stuff can be enjoyed by adults and again, that mindfulness piece, I agree, does kind of get overused sometimes, but it's so critical because if you're mindfully inviting your little one to play, then it's a totally different Mm -hmm. experience than just sort of like pushing some paint. Yeah. Going through the motions of, yeah, this is so awkward. What I recommend people do is do a little bit of mind's eye work, imagery work beforehand. So inviting the image of your little one up and you get the image of your little, Mm -hmm. your little one, you know, really going into detail. What did your hair look like? What is your, what do your clothes look like? What do you, you know, sometimes you yeah. can, one of the methods is to kind of really connect so as you're looking at this image of yourself in your mind, you know, because it's you mm-hmm. scan their little head. What are they thinking? Scan their little heart. What are they feeling? And really connect to the thoughts and feelings that would have been going through your head at that age. And oftentimes it's things like, I feel lonely. I feel scared. I don't know who I am. Yeah. My, my thoughts are, why yeah. isn't mommy or daddy around and all these things. And and then you can really kind of have that relational experience with the inner child, which it evokes in us mm-hmm. a sense of attachment. It evokes in us because we're adults. So when we see the little person, yeah. we, we, usually have this activated, you know, a little oxytocin, you know, comes in and we get this like, Oh, I want to take care of, or I feel bad for, mm-hmm. not bad for, but like empathy with passion for this, yeah. for this little one. I just want to scoop her up and give her a big hug. And I encourage my clients to really go with those feelings. Cause that's healthy. That's doing the top down, bottom up. That's creating the relational connection experience and inner child work yeah. can be incredibly healing. Cause it's a felt sense, you know, people often get tearful, uh, totally like a real feeling. So when you invite him or her and you're looking at that part of you and connecting with the feelings, and then you can say something like, Hey, you want to do some watercolors? And they're like, yes. Mm-hmm. And then you get down on the floor and you do uh-huh. some painting or crafts or whatever, or you go on a really beautiful walk or hike or a bike ride or go to a park and swing on the swings, swinging on the swings. Oh, it's so good for you. It's that like rocking, Mm -hmm. soothing sensation. Yeah. Soothing. I mean, there are some really fun ways that you can attend to yourself and and reparent. But the other piece that I want to mention, and then I'm going to stop talking because I can go on and on about this. (laughs) Yeah, fine. I love it. I love it. Reparenting 
includes all of it. So nurturing, affirming, and healthy limit setting. So it also means the hard work, mm -hmm. setting boundaries, taking care of ourselves, saying no, want to stay up till two o'clock, eating popcorn, watching movies because we don't have to get yeah. up in the morning. So in every way that you would imagine parenting a little one, doing that for yourself yeah. is part of this process. So it's the fun piece, but it's also the piece that's not so fun where you're taking responsibility. One more thing. A lot of times I'll run into uh -huh. people who struggle here because there's a lack of confidence that we can do a better job because. Yeah. Cause the shame I'm broken. I'm, yeah. I'm not also, something's wrong with me and lack of self-confidence or identity. Yes. Who am I? Underdeveloped do this? sense yes. of our functional adult. So when we're looking at parts work, we're looking at an inner child and then we're also looking at our, our, the self or the functional adult part. And when that feels underdeveloped, which sometimes it does, it can be really hard to look at this innocent little one inside and say, I'm going to be here for you. <laughs> cause you're like, Am I? yeah. Cause you're like, I can't be here for me. This my life's a mess. So validate that piece and yeah. say, that's absolutely fine. Work with your therapist on that and, and ways you can strengthen and develop the functional adult to really be there to take care of the child. And with, you know, knowledge comes responsibility. And once that door's opened and we start doing this reparenting and inner child work, it comes to the responsibility because you've, you've then committed and everything that you do in your adult life, you're also doing to that little one. So anytime we're not treating ourselves mm -hmm. well, we're not taking care of ourselves well, we're using substances that we shouldn't. One thing we can do is imagine like it's all happening to that little one too, you know, and we, it really kind of mm -hmm. opens that like, whoa, I need to really practice that. Yeah. I relate that a lot to, um, cause I do, I do inner child work. I, I, I mean, obviously with eating disorders, I've done it off and on forever. And one piece of that is and it, it, almost like a, not an easy, cause it's not easy, but one way that we can reparent is just by take, it's like our physical health, like making doctor's appointments and going, going to the dentist. And even though you hate it, being that parent and saying, no, it's important. We get our teeth checked out. And there's a lot of reluctance again, the thought that like something's wrong with us or that we're not good enough or something, you know, or not having that parent show us what that was like. So for some of my patients, I'll even tell them like, Hey, you know, if you have a, another friend or family member who was a good parent, are there things you can imagine or go back to mm -hmm. you remember them doing, or are they close enough and you feel safe enough to talk to them about being a parent and what that looks like? Sometimes we can kind of educate ourselves a little bit. I know we always think of it like when people are about to become parents, they read about it and research it, but we can do the same as we're reparenting. If we don't know what that looks like, if our parents were neglectful and we, you know, never had someone take care of us or be nurturing, like, what does that look like? One of my patients used to love to like roll herself tightly up in a blanket and rock in this rocking chair. And it was like her way of like putting herself to sleep, you know, and there's beautiful ways we can do that that might, might not feel quite so uncomfortable childlike, but I do encourage, I love the play component, especially if it's summertime. I always encourage people like slip and slides and you know, getting in the lawn and putting, you know, the sprinkler on and jumping through yeah. it, like giggling, um, you know, making cookies and like mm -hmm. really getting messy, like things that as adults, we think like, Oh, 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 oh. I'd encourage you as that parent comes in and wants to, Oh, 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 think, no, it's okay. They can have fun here. This is safe, healthy fun. And just doing that check-in, um, with yourself and have a little fun with it. And if you feel embarrassed, it's okay. We'll try again. But 
but yeah, the, the physical health component is really key here and making those appointments and making yourself go and taking care of those things. Like a parent, what do you, you scratch, let's say you are making cookies and you cut your finger. Do we go and clean it and put a bandaid on it? Can we imagine as we're doing that, that we're doing that to the little child us and we're soothing. It's okay. We've cleaned it. There's some kind of simple, more private ways we can reparent for anybody out there. Who's like, I cannot imagine going out in public and doing things childlike. These are some ways we can do it at home, build a blanket fort, you know, watch, watch a silly Disney movie. There's some things that we can do And be kind to yourself and gentle and take the process as slow as, as you need to, because like I said, some people, this sound, this is like nails on a chalkboard, like what we're talking about right now. Oh, oh, 100%. Especially if we haven't Mm -hmm. tapped into that ever. It's like, also shame messages. I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. I don't even know if I like adult me or child me, Ugh. you know, um, give yourself an opportunity to slowly get into this. Yeah. And that's jump why all I like working in. with a therapist is um, huge because I've had a lot of clients that I start with where yes. they hate their inner child, you know? Oh, oh, they've been yeah. battle, battle royale for years, yeah. right? You just start there if that's where we are, you know? So. Yes. A lot of it's like building, um, not building. It's, it's like, uh, repairing that relationship because our inner child could have been tantruming for like 20 years, you know, and yeah, be gentle with yourself. And also just to reiterate, because I know the person who asked this question was like, I want some other people to be there just to say what Lana said at the beginning, you can have these other relationships. I always used to think of, and I don't know if this is a necessarily the best way to verbalize it, but I used to think I had friendships that kind of fill these different voids or different supports that I need that I can't really offer myself. And so Think of them as ancillary support, not primary, right? You are your primary support. And that's that relationship that you're going to slowly develop. But it also is okay to call on these people. That's what relationships are for. That's part of how we're wired is to connect with others. So allowing for that, but also just being mindful of how much we're asking. And if maybe, and maybe this is something you just kind of check in with yourself. Like, is this something I... I should give to child me, or is this something I could get from this person? And that would be, you know, I would well, feel okay with that. Right. That's the work on determining the difference between adult attachment, healthy adult attachment needs and, mm-hmm. and child attachment needs. You can do that with a therapist, like sit down and list Yes, your therapist will you know? totally like walk <laughs> right. you through. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for spending all this time with us today and sharing your expertise. You had such wonderful insights. This was thank just you. incredibly helpful. Really great to be here with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I'd love to have you back. We could really talk about it so much. We'd easily, easily. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge. It's, it's going to help so many people. So thank you, Lana. Thanks. Therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Kate.